I love that story that is told by Jerome, St. Jerome, that, 14th, that fourth century priest and theologian of the early church. He tells the story that the disciple John, when he was old and decrepit, when he was infirm, could not make it to church on his own. And so those that were closest to John would actually pick him up and carry him to church gatherings, which is picturesque um, in and of itself. But Jerome went on to say that when John actually got to those worship gatherings, that he would always say the very same thing. He would say, my little children love one another. And it was this short sermon. It was this short iteration of, of what was on his heart. Uh, but it began to try those that were a part of that uh, Christian fellowship because John always said that. He never said anything else but that. It was this repetition one Sunday after the next to the point that they began to feel this tedium at work and they went to him and wearied of hearing this so much, they asked him why he said it so much and his response was, it is the commandment of the Lord, the only thing to be attained. It is enough, it is enough. How is it that you hear these words today? How is it that you hear these words, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses to help. This is an epistle, a letter, but really it is a sermon and even more so perhaps a commentary. For there are many who believe that John, as this epistle was written, was certainly, was certainly focusing on what does the original gospel say? And how are people now getting that wrong? His concern was that the emphasis that was placed on faith time and again in the gospel of John, when he had written that, he was casting that out into a community who had begun to not understand that this is something that had to be put into action. Little children, let us love not in word or speech, but in truth and in action. For it was written for a community that defined itself or needed to define itself over and against the world that was around it. You are the children of light, which is to tell us that there are also children of darkness, that unless the light of Christ is reflected through our lives, that we will not be able to dispel any darkness that may be around us. This is a part of the tensions of keeping faith alive and real. And John was attempting to do just that thing. 
In fact, it was very current with him that he was remembering back to what Jesus had said to his disciples that were gathered at that last supper. Do you remember that Jesus said, just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We are inclined to believe that Easter is over at this point. Uh, there are some signs that Easter did occur just uh, three weeks ago, but we are also under the mistaken notion that somehow Easter must be kept until next year. At our house, there's still a bunny on our breakfast table, and there are eggs around the bunny. And I was thinking to myself as I looked at the bunny, your days are numbered. <laughs> because I know at a certain point, Sue will scoop that money up and put it in a box and put it in the attic and wait until next year to bring that bunny out again. But Easter is not so easily packaged. In fact, if we give ourselves over to the notion, if we give ourselves over to the notion that Easter can be boxed up and put aside until the following year, then we have done ourselves an Easter and especially Christ and injustice. If, it is meant, if Easter is meant to be vivid, it is the embodying of Jesus as our Lord who has given his life and been raised from the dead for our sakes. You and I live in a world of virtual reality. If you haven't been to a movie lately, you owe it yourself just to go and see the spectacle that's on the screen. There is this digital processing that does not even require film anymore to show movies. And when you look up at the screen, the colors are so vibrant and alive, it pulls you into the story immediately because everything looks so real. Now, you know this at your own house. You've got one of those TVs, I bet. Some of you do at least, that are so realistic, it almost looks like it's three-dimensional. If you don't have one, you probably are thinking right now about getting one of those TVs. Or it may be that you have considered, just because you've seen some youth and young adults doing this nearby, but getting something in which to put your cell phone and then look at 3D, the virtual reality of a world around you, where even if you turn your heads, you can see it seems that the room moves with you and everything is just so real. But you know it's not. You know it's not. You and I are called to a reality that goes far beyond this made virtually possible through technology. You and I are called to love one another. To love one another is to keep Easter alive among us. When Jesus becomes real in our lives, there will be many spottings of him in the world. As people see you, they will begin to see Christ as well. And as you see others, you will find Christ, Easter, made vivid.
enthusiasm, they call it. And it was a mixed bag. Even a few hundred years ago, when John Wesley was gathering together those that he called Methodists for this church renewal movement, one of the things that he was warned against was enthusiasm, which was this unbridled expression often found uh, in the church in certain settings where people let their spirits so overflow with praise that they are just this uncontained expression in worship. And it becomes really almost embarrassing at a certain point, at least to the likes of us, it becomes embarrassing. And for John Wesley, he was treading this very fine line because he knew that left to ourselves, we will become so enamored with the idea of the stateliness of religion that we will lose the impact of Easter happening within us. Enthusiasm means in theos to be of God, to be overflowing there at the very brim of expression of who God is and what he is about. Uh, Sue and I have been exploring the book of Acts over the last couple of weeks, and the stories that we've been reading are evidence of this happening. In Peter and John, when that crippled man was raised and made to stand again, it was an affront against the temple guard who were there, those who were temple elite. And so when Peter and John professed that the way in which this happened was by the grace of God at work, they were told that they had to stop expressing in witness that story. And when they did not, they were imprisoned because they were acting with this boldness that was frightening to the church as the world knew it. And you remember the story of Stephen, don't you? Who was so expressing his faith that he told not only the New Testament story of Christ, but he started at the beginning and walked all the way through the scripture in his telling. And when he got to Christ and he was telling about the greatness of our Lord, he made that fatal error, I suppose of pointing the finger and saying, he died because you killed him. And with that, people leaned over and began to pick up stones and throw them at this one whose face shone like an angel. And they're holding the cloaks of those that were casting the stones was Saul who did not know that the Lord had a story for his life much different than what he had encountered up to then. What is it that God might be doing in your life up to this very moment? Can you picture in any way that anything could change in you to embolden you to be that entity reflecting Christ 
in the world today. Loving others as Christ has loved you. I must admit that I have been a very overprotective parent across the years that our girls have grown up. I have sheltered them and protected them as much as a daddy was able to do. When they would go on the playgrounds, I would race around to make sure that the thing they were going to get on was safe for them to get on. I can remember very specifically when they would crawl up on that ladder to go down the slide that I would put my hands on either side of the ladder in order that they would walk to the top and then I would race around to the side when they got there just in case they leaned and began to topple in one direction or the other. I was there to catch them, you know. And when they finally started down the slide, I raced around to catch them before they hit the ground. I couldn't help myself. I was fascinated to know that Sue, who uh, was seeing this in me all these years and saw this even on our oldest daughter's graduation day from, from college. She was 22 years old. And Margaret was getting ready to go up. When I looked up at the stage that had all of these steps, I leaned over and I said to Margaret, be careful when you're going up those steps. <laughs> and Sue looked at me and she said, give it a rest. <laughs> Erwin McManus wrote a book in which he tells the story of his son. He and his wife one morning were standing out in the yard of their house and they heard this voice above them calling out, hey, look at me, I wanna jump. And they looked up and they saw their six-year-old son up there, and, and sure enough, he was on the roof. He had sneaked out a second-story window and was standing on the roof of that, that home. And he said, can I jump? And his mother said, of course you can't jump. Get back inside that house. And Irwin said, he didn't know what exactly came over him, but he said, sure you can jump. And his wife looked at him and said, what do you mean he can jump? He said, give me a moment here. He looked up at his son and he said, he said, is this something that you absolutely are going to do someday? And his son thought for a moment and he said, yes, yeah, someday I'm going to do this. And he said, okay, go ahead and jump now. I'd rather be here when it happens. And he said with that, his son backed up and ran to the edge of that roof and sailed off the roof, screaming, Daddy, catch me. <laughs> it, I was not that kind of father. But the boldness 
of all of that, the father and the boldness of the son captures my heart because you and I, and I think that I'm in league with others here who understand this overprotectedness, we constrain what God would have us do and what God would have us be. And he seeks that we would be his bold children. This expression of Easter love and care in the world, God alive in us. Those who would go and visit Mother Teresa would always hear the same message. I've heard it from so many different persons. They would go visit her over in Calcutta and there they would become a part of the work at least for a period of time that she was doing caring for the sick, the poor, the dying there in the streets of Calcutta. But inevitably, Mother Teresa would always turn to those who were visiting her and would say, find your own Calcutta. Find your own Calcutta. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to find that place in which our lives would be an expression of love to others? Students all around us are preparing right now for tests. Don't you think that they don't have something on their mind in regards to their coursework? They're thinking about it because they're wondering to themselves what's going to be on the test. In fact, I bet they've even phrased that to their teachers, what's on the test? I'm telling you, I'm telling you right here, it, it explains it. This is his commandment, that we should believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. That is going to be on the test. My Aunt Marjorie worked for the Salvation Army all of her life, nearly. When she left school, she entered it, and she gave everything that she had to that precious work. She died a number of years back now, but I still remember her funeral. They didn't call it a funeral. Um, they called it a promotion to glory, if you know what the Salvation Army is all about. She was promoted to glory. But one of the stories that was told about my Aunt Marjorie in the midst of that service was that earlier on a few years, she had had to go into the hospital. And when she was there, she was put in a room where there was another young girl that was there. And in conversation with that young girl, she learned that that young girl had been quite a rebel in her family and even in the community, she figured. Um, the girl really did not want to have a lot to do with Aunt Marjorie. But in an inventive way, Aunt Marjorie, Aunt Marjorie asked her one evening, would you read the Bible to me? And the young girl looked at her and glared. And Aunt Marjorie said, my glasses are broken, which was true. But Aunt Marjorie's glasses were always broken. I never knew her to have glasses that weren't broken, you know. And so she was using this as an opportunity and she handed a Bible over to the girl and she told her what she wanted to have read. And so the girl sat there in her bed and read to Aunt Marjorie in this bed. And then Aunt Marjorie thanked her, put the Bible away and thought this worked last night. She woke up the next morning. I wonder if it would work this morning. And so she handed the Bible back 
to the girl and asked, would you read from the Bible to me again? And over the course of a number of days, that girl read every verse that Aunt Marjorie thought she needed to hear. <laughs> it, it reminds me of the work of Gideon's. You know, this brochure, I don't know where I put it, but the brochure is so fascinating because the emphasis is not on the individual. The emphasis is on the scripture. Let scripture do its work and you'll be amazed at how God can use it. Aunt Marjorie had been out of the hospital for weeks and received a contact from the parents of the girl. And they said to her, we are so grateful. You have no idea what you did, which she did not. They went on to say that their daughter's life had been completely changed by that experience. A non-judgmental boldness simply to love others who need to be loved. This holy boldness that John Wesley used to call his doctrine of assurance is something that you and I can have even to this day. It's not so much that we would parade it before anyone else or that we would have to come up and reinvent the wheel for how it's done. John Wesley talked about two means by which God's grace could come to us. The first of those is works of piety. And you know how that's done. You attend worship, you pray, you receive the sacraments of Holy Communion, baptism. If you're Catholic, that list goes on for a ways. Um, you not only embody the presence of God in worship, public worship, but you seek to, to have that as a part of your lives and your family and at home. And so these things are acts of piety that do impute to us God's grace. But John Wesley would always say there is a second means of grace, and that is mercy, acts of mercy. Every single thing that you do in loving care for someone else is a way in which God will bless you, strangely enough. And so we return to the scripture here, and it says, little children, let us love not in word or speech, but in truth and action. And this is his commandment, that we should believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded. My homiletics professor, Fred Craddock, used to say, I'm amazed at the number of preachers who strut in the name of the one who washed feet. Easter is losing its glow just about now. <clears throat> it's losing its color. It's losing its vividness. Only you and I can preserve it. Would you preserve Easter by loving one another in the way that Christ has called us to?
as we conclude worship, I want to open this altar. If God is speaking to your heart, and you know that, know that this altar is open to you. It may be that you have been a Christian for years, or it may be that this is something very new, and you're feeling the call of God in your life. I want you to know that this altar is open to you. Roger will come and lead us in our closing hymn. Please know that you are invited to come and to pray here at this altar.